you open up to Matthew chapter 6, please? This is a passage that I thought was going to be a, um, one of those passages, relatively easy, not much is said, and it ambushed me in my studies. This is a very difficult passage. This, is, this whole Sermon on the Mount series is challenging because it's so practical. And this one, more than any in a long time, has really hit me. So, uh, let's pray and then we'll begin. God, I just ask you to um, pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Help us to understand clearly your word. In your name, amen. Growing up, I had the most nunnish nun you could ever imagine for a fourth grade teacher. She wore a black habit on her head. She had big, long, beaded crucifix around her neck. And her name, and this was her name, was Sister Joan of Arc. And if you know anything about Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc in history is known as the Maid of Orleans. She was one fierce military leader. And she's one of the first feminine heroes of the traditional church. She is known to have visions from God to go lead the army of the French. And um, she was sold out as a warrior for God. And so my teacher took that name because Joan of Arc was her idol. And you could tell. Every time you entered the room in fourth grade, it felt like war. You were ready to go to battle. <laughs> if she caught you messing around, she would call you up in front and publicly humiliate you with no problem. I used to chew on my collar like that. I got really nervous. I'd chew on my collar. And if Sister Joan of Arc caught me chewing on my collar, she'd go to my desk, grab me by the ear, and run me around the room a couple times and say, now sit down and stop chewing on your collar. And I did, because I was terrified of Sister Joan of Arc. I'd even go home and tell my dad what she did, and my dad was scared of her. I'm not going to talk to her. I'm not going to talk to her. So if you were to ask me growing up what a religious person was like, instantly she flashed across my mind. She was sold out for God. Not only, not only is she tough, but she took a voluntary vow of poverty. And she told the class, I gave up my life to take care of you rotten kids. She took a vow of celibacy. She'd say, Jesus is my husband. And she always let us know she nightly prayed for our poor lost souls that we would not go to hell. She was a crazy, I mean she was crazy. But I, I, I would take her as my example. So if I believed a person really wanted to be devoted to God, they had better get ready to renounce the world like Sister Joan of Arc. They had better be ready to be publicly willing to give up everything you own, and of course, wipe that smile off your face if you really wanted to serve God. I really believe that. But is that what true religion is? What is true religion? Well, we enter a section today where we're going to talk about it. If you notice in verse 1, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. That phrase, practicing your righteousness, is what we think of religion, doing the work of God. So the title for this next two weeks is called Practical Righteousness, or Religion. And um, 
Jesus is going to, instead of debate with the Pharisees of how their teaching has not gone to the depth like we've been teaching, he's going to talk about how you and me should practice our religion, how we should live. He's going to talk in verse 1 through 4. Today we're going to talk about giving. And then next week, 5 through 18, he's then going to talk about prayer and fasting. So really you could say these two events, the left picture represents giving, the right picture represents prayer and fasting. This is what the church does. Every church gives alms to the poor, and every church I know is about praying and worshiping. Today we're just going to focus on giving. And that's what verses 1 through 4 is all about. Before we start reading, though, I want you to look at verse 1, because verse 1 gives what I would say it's the umbrella verse, or it gives the context for the rest of the verses that come after it. And he's not specifically as much going to talk about the act of giving as he's going to talk about the intention of giving. And look what he says in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So while we are going to talk about giving for a little bit, really his intention is to talk about rewards and motives. Why do you do what you do? Why do you practice religion the way you practice your religion? Why would Sister Joan of Arc swipe at the kids with a medieval sword? No, she didn't do that. She, I, but I thought she was. That's why I was terrified. But today we're going to talk about giving in context of why. Do you give? So let's just begin with the definition, what he means here. So giving means meeting the needs of others, the needy, meeting the needs of others through volunteer contributions of private individuals. That's, if you look at verse 2, he says, thus, when you give, so he's talking about you individually give, and giving is not a compelled thing, Otherwise, it wouldn't be rewarded. If I'm forced to give, there's no reward in that. So Jesus is talking about giving, and specifically he's talking about money in this passage. Often you'll see this interpreted as almsgiving, money to the poor, that kind of thing. But Jesus is going to talk about money. And he often talks about money in the Bible. And the reason he talks about money is for two reasons. The first reason is money is the best way to see what you really want what you really believe, what you really worship. Money is the most tangible sign of where your heart is. The second reason he talks about money is because money is a symbol of faith. If I can freely open my wallet and trust God, that means I really believe he'll take care of me. But if I don't and I hold tight to my wallet, that means I really don't trust him to take care of me. So you could say how you use your wallet reveals what you really believe. So do you give? Do you see needs and try to meet them from your own resources? Are you willing to open your wallet to help the poor? I mean, that's a deep question for you to think about. It's not necessarily what we're going to deal with here, but that's a question that you need to answer. I am grateful to say, when I, when I think about our church, just on a side note, I 
I am grateful for you guys. This has been a tough year, and you're an incredibly giving church. Not only have we met our budget, but you've helped a lot of hurting families underneath the radar. And also, you've been faithful to our giving campaign towards the building. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you. You're a very giving church. But Jesus is not here to harp on the subject of giving. So I'm not here to compel you to give. I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I do that enough. So we're not here to do that. What he's going to do, though, is he is going to explain the rewards that await the giver. And there's two types of givers. And there's two types of rewards given. The first type of giver we find in verse 2. Listen to what verse 2 says. Thus, when you give uh, to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In fact, this whole section begins with the words beware, or he's saying, watch out, watch out. Don't be a hypocrite when you give. A hypocrite is another word for a two-faced liar, basically. It's fake. A charlatan, a performer, somebody who is showing one thing, but deep down inside is another thing, and he's saying, be careful. The way he describes the hypocrites is they're going around the church blowing trumpets. It's an exaggeration, but they're going, da -da -da -da, look at me, I give. Aren't I great? Look how good of a servant I am. And it says, in the synagogue, in front of everybody else, look at me. Once upon a time, there was a small town pastor who was asked to perform a funeral service for a very rich and wicked man. This man acquired money through lying, cheating, and stealing. And his twin brother, who was his equally devilish business partner, went up to the pastor right before the funeral and he said this. He said, excuse me, reverend. Uh, if you tell a congregation that my brother was a saint, I'll donate a very large amount of money to your church. Six figures, in fact. Just give a memorial to my wonderful brother and his legacy. So the pastor thought about it for a minute. And he said, all I got to do is say your brother was a saint. Yep. And then he shook his head and said, all right, I can do that. When he got up to speak about the deceased man, he cleared his throat, <clears throat> and he said before the congregation, before you lay the body of one of the most corrupt, lying, cheating, and wicked sinners I have ever met, but compared to his twin brother, he's a saint. <laughs> That's a hypocrite, wanting to be seen as somebody that I'm really not. I want to be seen as holy. We want to be seen as spiritual. When deep down, if we really were honest, we're all sinners who are saved only by the grace of God. Who are we to boast? Verse 2 says they want to be praised by others. They want to be praised by others. Jesus elaborates on this in Matthew 23, where he says hypocrites are the ones that like to sit in the important seats. They want to be noticed. They want to be appreciated they want the place of honor at the banquet, the big conferences. They want to be seated, seated in the front. They want to be greeted with special titles and positions. 
Call me father. Call me doctor. Call me reverend. Call me professor. Call me saint. And yet Jesus says, if you give in order to receive those honors, just remember, that's all you're going to get. That's your reward. And the opposite's also true. Not only is that only your reward, you get nothing in heaven. Look at verse 1 and 2, the very end of verse 1. Um, be before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have, I mean, he's saying this in very certain terms, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The end of verse 2, truly I say to you, they have, those hypocrites, they have received their reward. It means it's done. And so what he's saying is be very, very careful, hypocrite. Be very, very careful, you who give, because you might be losing your reward. I call this the cancellation principle. It goes like this. You guys know it. Math, it's very simple. If you take any number, take any number mathematically, large or small, you can even think of the biggest number, times that number by zero, and what is the answer every time? So, Tom, give me the biggest number you can think of. $18 billion? $18 billion. Times it by zero. What do you get? Man, you're, give me a hand. That's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. So, that is mathematics. Let's talk about spiritual realities. Any good deed. Money's given. People you've brought to Christ. Songs that you have sung on stage, classes you may have taught, sermons you have given, maybe you helped out in the inner city, gone on a mission trip. Maybe you have adopted children. Or you have an elected title in the church. And then multiply that by any sought-after public praise. Do -do -do! Hey, look at me! I was nominated. Or do you know how many people came to that event I had? Oh, boy. Any public praise? The answer is you received heavenly silence. You get nothing. You drank the fizzy lifting drink, and you get nothing. Martin Lloyd-Jones write, if I'm concerned as I preach the gospel as to what people think of my preaching, well, that is all I will get out of it. And that, that stings me, because I've got to be honest with you, I'm a man, and I want to be liked. And, and you get nothing from God. And then he says it like this, it's an absolute, meaning kind of like anything times zero always equals zero. If you're seeking a reward for men, you'll get it, but that's all you'll get. Work through your religious life. Think of all the good you've done in the past in the light of that pronouncement. How much remains to come to you from God? And then he writes this. It is a terrifying thought, is it not? Any good deed times 
public praise that you're seeking equals heavenly silence. Some of you are dying for public recognition from others. You want to be significant. You want to be important. You want to be noticed. But why? I say be careful because you should learn to save for later. Your reward is going to be worth it. And I want to talk about it because I think this whole idea of rewards is something we don't think about too often. And I really believe one of my jobs is to get you to crave heaven. If I can get you to crave heaven and want to be in heaven and live for heaven, I think this world will stop losing its grip on you. And I'm going to give you um, five thoughts about rewards. And I got this from a sermon that I've, I always love to go to. It's from um, C.S. Lewis. He spoke at Oxford University in 1941. And he, he preached this sermon called The Weight of Glory. You can download it for free, and he's kind of dealing with this issue that people really believe that the highest goal is to do everything for no rewards. Like, I shouldn't want any reward. I can remember when I was in college, I took a philosophy class, and we had this very smug teacher, and he said uh, this. He said, do you realize, students, that uh, everything we do in life is for selfish gain? And try to prove me wrong. And I can remember everybody was thinking of things that they would do that weren't for selfish gain. He always said, no, you're always trying to get something out of it. And he made it seem like if we do anything for the purpose of a return on our investment, then it's evil, selfish. And C.S. Lewis is arguing that point, saying, is it really? Look at verse 4, for instance. Verse 4. Look at the very end. It says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you as if that should be a motivation for the things we do, to be rewarded. So it seems like from, in, from uh, just reading this, God wants you to strive for rewards. So in this paper by C.S. Lewis, he gives us five reasons. Number one is because God gave desires or he gave rewards to be a natural motivator. It moves us towards the things we should be moved to be doing. God puts enticements so we will be doing the right thing. The problem in C.S. Lewis' argument, and I completely agree, is we settle too easy with lesser things. I'll explain that in a second. So the first thing is this whole idea that rewards are natural. He, God makes us to want things. The most obvious example is food the most obvious example. If you didn't want to eat, you die. So what does God do? He makes us hungry. Hunger, to some degree, is a really good gift. I, I remember seeing somebody that was in a hospital, and they were so sick they weren't hungry, and because they weren't hungry, they wouldn't eat. Because they wouldn't eat, they had no nutrition to fight their illness. So God makes us hungry. And so what hunger does is hunger leads us to eating, and so the reward of chasing the hunger is finding a big juicy steak on the end of your fork with some A1 sauce dripping, and it's medium rare, and it's been, has a little bit of a Lowry season salt on it. Oh, see? 
Wanting food is not selfish, it's natural. But there are unnatural desires which are selfish. C.S. Lewis then goes on in this whole idea of love. He says, for instance, the natural desire of loving somebody is marriage. That's the natural outcome. That's the reward of love. He says, but there are some people that get married for money. Money is not a natural reward of love. Money is skewed. It's perverted. So therefore, it becomes selfish, not natural. You could say it like this. Wanting food in and of itself is not wrong, but when food becomes my obsession and I become a glutton, then it becomes selfish and unnatural. And then under this whole idea of wanting rewards, so God gives us rewards, he entices us with rewards, the problem is he wants us to want the best reward. But we so easily settle for things that really aren't the true reward. So he gives this illustration, he says it's kind of like the kid who's promised a day at the beach, but he's having too much fun making mud pies in his backyard. Because he doesn't know how delightful that beach is. And he said, so many Christians are mud pieing it with sex and drugs and pornography and crap that they don't have a hunger for God and what he wants you to have. We're far too easily pleased, he says. Second thing about rewards is this. The ultimate reward is in us. And it drives us all. We all want the ultimate reward. What is the ultimate reward? Heaven. Everything, and to a degree, is a shadow of getting us to that thing which is the most real. Heaven is the most real thing. It just is. The touching, the seeing, the tasting of heaven and Jesus himself is hardwired into us. Too often we hang on to the shadow thinking it will satisfy we want great worship. Yeah, I want great worship, but great worship isn't it. It's just a shadow. I want that perfect person. I guarantee you, you'll find that perfect person and they will not satisfy you after a while. So if you're looking for them to be your satisfaction, you're going to smother them, you're going to suffocate them, and you are never going to be satisfied. That person will not be your answer. C.S. Lewis says it like this, if beauty and good things are mistaken as the thing itself, what we really desire, they will term, turn into dumb, dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. My wife will often tell me this, she'll say, I'm not made for this earth, and she's right. We will be back on this earth, but one day we're going to be back on this earth where it's perfect, but right now, it's not the way it should be. And there is all, in all of us this frustration, this weariness of this earth because eternity is in our heart. It's been placed there. C.S. Lewis even talks to the atheists because there's atheists who said, this earth is it. This is where, where it is. And so they try to convince you that earth is your home. And this is how they do it. Number one, they try by persuading you that earth can be made into heaven trying to pacify your sense of exile and dissatisfaction in earth as it is. They're, that's really what the term progressive means. It means that we are going to someday progress or progress to utopia. It's going to be perfect. Just keep giving money. We'll get there someday. And they use, usually have to steal language from heaven. So they're stealing from us to promote their lie, basically. C.S. Lewis goes on and he says, Secondly, 
They tell you that this fortunate event is still a good way off in the future, thus trying to have you ignore the fact that it's not here. So they keep pointing you to the future so you don't get dissatisfied with their false promises. And then finally, lest your longing for real heaven should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all happiness they promise could come to man on earth, yet still each generation will lose it by death. So they try to get you to ignore the fact that even if I taste utopia here for a little bit, I'm still going to die. It's not permanent. So, sum it up, they try to convince you mankind is making great strides without God, but we're all doomed anyway, so who cares? Really. If you really think about it. Third thing. Here's five things that Scripture does promise about heaven. And I will be honest with you, I really don't understand any of them. And I think we act like we do, but I don't think we do. The first one is, we will be with Christ. Wow! I often heard it, would you rather have the building or the person who built the building? We will be like Christ. We'll talk about that in a second. That, in and of itself, is you know what that means? I don't. <laughs> I know it's great. Third one is, we will always increase in possession and power. On earth, we get more and older and weary and tired. G.K. Chesterton one time made this illustration of this. He said, do you ever just watch your kid? Do you ever have a kid that just keeps jumping in your arms and you're just getting tired of it? He'll jump on a chair and say, Dad, catch me. Dad, catch me. Dad, catch me. And why does he keep doing it? Because he's young and fresh and alive and every time's a joy to him. Why does it bother us? Because we we're tired. He goes, in heaven, we're going to keep jumping and jumping and we're never going to get tired. It's an amazing thought to me. We'll be feasting. We will be feasting. Isaiah 25 talks about all of the feasting that's going to happen. It means party. It means wine. The fifth thing, we will be ruling and reigning. How dare him talk about that? <laughs> Don't blame me, Isaiah 25. We will be ruling and reigning. We will be kings and queens and princes and lords and ladies and managers and governors over this earth. And when I say that, I don't think you believe me. I really don't. I think you think that's a fairy tale. It's a cartoon story. No. No, it's the greatest story. I once heard somebody said, why do the greatest stories, why do like the fairy tales and greatest stories grab us so much? Because we know deep down they're true. Fourth, and these, uh, the fourth and fifth I want to jump off of John 5.44. Look at John 5.44. John 5.44 is a verse that, um, scary I'd say. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about, but it puts it in more um, direct language. And I think if you let this verse, memorize this verse, it will, it, will say, it will set you free from the opinions of others. You and I are ruled by what other people think about us too much. Way too much. It's a curse. But look at John 5.44. Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, saying, 
why are you so caught up with other people think about you and you could care less what I think? It's a bad thing. And he said, it's almost like they're in competition with each other. If that's all we're striving for is what other people think about, it's a good sign we're not necessarily really devoted to God like we should be. So, he talks about glory. And glory is one of those words that, um, it's kind of like, you know, a churchy word. It's a churchy word where we can say glory and we're like, oh, amen, but I don't, it's like we don't really know what, he's, what that word means. And he says there's two things that the ancient Greeks thought when they heard glory. First is fame. You'll be famous. You'll be well-known, appreciated, well-respected, and talked well about. But the difference between the glory that we receive down here and the glory of heaven is who's giving the glory. The appreciation will not come from other people. come from God himself. Who cares if my buddy down the street says well done? They don't really even know what they're talking about. But if the creator of the universe who judges living in the dead says well done, I can assure you it will really mean something. I mean, it will really mean something. C.S. Lewis says, in the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. And he said, I read in a periodical the other day, the fundamental thing is how we think of God. No, no, the fundamental thing is how God thinks of us. That should drive us. And I think glory also is about the idea of, in the Greeks, ancient Greeks, it's displaying beauty or shining, brilliance, radiance. That's the idea of glory. And um, we are promised to shine. There's a, there's a verse that always has captivated me. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 19. And here's what it says. And this is another one of those things that if you can explain it to me, I'd love to hear. I don't get it. Here's what it says. For the creation is waiting in eager longing or eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So creation itself is waiting for you and I to be revealed, to be seen, to be shown. And they're waiting for it. It's almost like their reward is to see you and me in our brilliance, in our glory. So the statement is, we will share in the untainted and unblemished beauty that we can already see and be one with. A couple days ago, the sky was so blue. It was so blue. And there, God made that. And there is a beauty and a sublime perfection to that. And then you look in the mirror and you see a piece of rotted out clay. Someday, this face will be just as brilliant as that sky. And it will be right. So hopefully this will entice you to say, I don't know what any of this means, but I know this is sure a lot better than anything I'm getting now. And waiting for my praise for later will be worth giving up the silly accolades I'm giving them, getting them. Because they really don't mean much. That's what he's talking about in verses 3 and 4. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Matthew 6. 
He says in verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will give you a reward. So God is, sees everything. He sees in secret. And he's keeping track. So he's keeping track of what is praiseworthy. So in other words, it's like he's keeping a record. He's keeping a ledger, books. So why don't you quit keeping the books? Because he's keeping them. Every day, all the time, it's not up to you to keep those books. And for two reasons. The first one's obvious, because God's always watching. He says, says in Psalm 139, he knows when I rise, he knows when I sit, he knows where I'm going, he knows when I'm coming, he knows all the words that I'm going to say before they even come off my mouth. So he's judging motives, he's recording words, and he's watching actions. He's keeping the books. So you don't need to. You don't need to keep the books. Both good and bad. I heard it said that one insult will ruin us as compared to a hundred compliments. Quit keeping books on either side. Don't keep the books. And the second reason why you shouldn't keep the books is because we are always exaggerating all the time. We really don't see things rightly. We don't see ourselves rightly. We don't see others rightly, and we never will. So when we keep track of our good deeds... We often give ourselves far too much credit than we deserve. It's called the, it's called the error of self-congratulation. We are far too easily impressed with ourselves. So I'll give you an example. You understand this example. It's the American Idol. How many of you have seen American Idol? Don't need to raise your hands. You know what I'm talking about. A person comes on the show because they really believe. They really believe as they stand before the judges. Why did you come today? Because I'm the next American Idol, they say. Just like that. They stand before the judges, and the judges ask, what song are you going to sing for us today? I want to sing, I want to sing Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. Are you sure you want to sing that song? <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I will love you. Wait, wait, wait a second, Simon. says, wait, wait. You sound like a howling cat in the alley. Who told you you could sing? Well, my mom told me I could sing. She thinks I'm great, and I am great, by the way. No, I hate to break it to you. You can't sing. You just can't sing. And then the mom comes flying in. How dare you, Simon, telling my daughter she can't sing. She has a lovely voice. That's our problem. Right there. We try to compute our own goodness. We even think we do God a favor by going to church. Look, God, I wasn't at the campsite this morning. I went to church on Monday, or on Sunday and Memorial Day. Aren't you proud? He's like, I wish you'd come all the time. I got so much to give you. Our problem is we think we're so sacrificial when we give the church. We really think we're amazing and God will be impressed. You think God will be impressed? Do you know what Jesus would do on one Saturday? Jesus would do so much. Like I was reading one time. I was reading just through the book of Mark. And, you know, so he's on the Sabbath, what he was doing one Sabbath. And the Sabbath was their Saturday. You know what I do on my normal Saturday afternoon? I'll watch five college football games. 
Jesus' normal Saturday afternoon is he's healed a whole town. And then John says there's so many things Jesus did that there's not enough books in the library to keep this book. Now, he's impressive. I am not. I know evangelists who tell you they saw 100 people saved. I saved so many people saved at my rallies. And then you'll talk to some of the people that said they went forward and are saved. And then you think to yourself, they're probably better off when they were raised in hell. Because they don't really know what they're even talking about. We're so impressed with our systems. We are far too easily impressed with ourselves. So instead of keeping track of our good deeds, we need to learn to practice self-forgetfulness. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Go to Matthew 25, I'll show you. You probably know this passage well. Matthew 25, 31 to 40. And I'm going to show you something that is underneath the surface of this passage. This is usually used for why people should give and why we should have social programs, but that's not what I want to point, I want to point at. It's Matthew 25, 31 to 40. And it's in the end of the world. It's talking about the end, end days when Jesus, God is giving out rewards. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit, that means you get it all. You get it all. Everything is yours. That's a pretty good reward. And in verse 35, he tells the reason why. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then look at this. Start verse 37, and this is the key. Look real close. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry? Verse 38, when did we see you a stranger? Verse 39, and when did we see you sick? Do you notice something? They didn't know when. They didn't know when the right hand, their left hand didn't know when the right hand was doing good. They forgot about it. But God didn't forget. They weren't keeping glory tabs and ledgers of all the good they did. They didn't even know. And because of that, they were rewarded with everything. It's an amazing passage. This is Memorial Day. I was talking to Jared about it. He said Memorial Day is primarily for the soldiers that have died in battle. That gave us our freedom, which is an amazing thing. But some people also use Memorial Day to remember a person in their life that was amazing. There was somebody in my life, my wife's mom was an amazing lady. And the reason she's amazing is because she never took credit for anything. We'd go over to the house, and I'd say, Ma, you just got done cooking everything. Sit down. She goes, no, can I help you? What do you need? I'll get whatever you need. Then my kids would come rolling in, and she would sit and talk and listen to the kids and say, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And then she had Parkinson's. She's dying at the end of her life, 
and we'd come in to try to help her, and my wife would try to help her, and she'd say, oh, I'm, you, don't, you don't have to take care of me. Why are you, I'll, don't worry about it. And she could barely talk. She would never take credit for anything. That's who I want to rule over me in heaven. I want her to rule over me. I want her to be rewarded because she never took any of it. Not one ounce of it. She wouldn't allow it. She goes, oh no. If we would let this change who we are, we would be so refreshing to others. So, give. Without the trumpets and the fanfare, and God will reward.